So, a week or two ago, uh, Meg and I celebrated our four-year wedding anniversary, uh, which was, right? Yeah, something to be excited about. I was. I am. Um, And it got me thinking about what my first week of marriage was like. Um, For our honeymoon, we went to the Pacific Northwest, mostly Washington, Oregon, um, to retrace some steps of really cool places that I found on a road trip in 2009 with Ben Mercer and Ross Moncrief, who loves road trips so much. Um, it was, it was cool. One place I wanted to show Megan got to was in Fort Stevens in Oregon. Um, I'm just looking to see glimmers of familiarity in Ben's face, uh, to, uh, see this, uh, there's this place where you can walk onto a beach and walk right up to and through this huge rusted skeleton of a 19th century trade ship called the wreck of the Peter Iredale. It's pretty great. Um, my plan for that part of our trip was to check into the inn in the early afternoon, and then we could make it out to the beach by late afternoon and get the cliche but still awesome, nice, long, romantic walk on the beach at sunset. Oh, um, it was going to be really cool, um, and it was, but not for the reasons we had hoped. It didn't go quite ideally or according to our plan anyway. First, we were running a little bit late that morning, uh, and then we you know, took some wrong turns uh, by some, I mean a whole ton of them. Meg is nodding. Um, terrible back roads. And by the time we actually got there, uh, the sun was just concluding its setting behind these huge, thick, gray storm clouds that were dumping diagonal rain down on the beach. Uh, a little, little, little different than what we had hoped. Um, at that point, we're in the car, and I look at Meg, and she looks at me, and I'm like, Let's freaking do it. And so we just jump out and book it across the beach in the diagonal rain, soaked to the bone. We rush over. We can see the, you know, the, the wreckage and the mist. Well, it's not the mist. It's just the air is made of water now. And then just sprint back to the car, jump inside, soaked and laughing. It was pretty cool. Uh, also, bonus points. Now I get to tell people that our idea of a romantic date is, uh, you know, a nice long sprint along a cold, dreary beach. After nightfall, wearing black in the rain, near the bones of a ghost ship. Goth points for life. Um, so yeah, it was, it was good. It was, it was metal points for life. So yeah, it was good. Um, but it, it wasn't the plan, you know. And honestly, as cool as it was, it wasn't ideal, you know. Because as fun as it was, call it cliche or whatever, but I wanted the whole sunset thing. I wanted that. And we didn't get that. Um, most of that had to do with just some choices that we had both made earlier. You know, I could have chosen to start moving a little bit earlier that day, could have printed out some better directions. Um, lots, of, lots of things there. But the ideal plan fell through. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, that's not really a big deal. All it was about was our, our preferences. But imagine there was more to that, the situation. Imagine, just for the sake of argument, what if God had told me, I want you to be at that beach by sunset. I'm setting something up. I want you to be there. Don't miss it. I'm like, okay, Lord. And it still didn't work out. So in that situation, with God's desire not being fulfilled, what does that mean? You know, if God didn't get what he wanted, what does that mean? Does it mean that God isn't in control? Tonight we're going to look at another story that begs that question, but in a much, much bigger way. Two weeks ago, uh, Leonor talked about um, Israel's demand for a king, so they could have a leader that just fit into their nice, predictable box, a leader like all the other nations. And last week, Jesse examined the story of a tall, dark, and handsome Jewish dude named Saul who went looking for some donkeys and found his destiny. 
Um, tonight we're looking at the culmination of that as Israel receives its first king um, against God's wishes. So if you've got your Bible, we're starting at 1 Samuel 10.9, and that's going to be up on the screen as well. Yeah, it will be. Context always matters, by the way. So if you weren't here last week, this is right after the prophet Samuel privately anoints Saul, designating him as the next guy to be king, and then tells him that this prophecy is going to be confirmed by certain signs that he'll see along the way. Verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart, or changed his heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, Yeah, and who's their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is some weirdness. Um, This is not a thing that typically happened to just anybody. As Jesse talked about, um, before Jesus came down, um, the Holy Spirit was not a person that everybody had access to all the time. The contact with him was a very rare occurrence. Um, you sort of only expected it to happen with prophets, and for whatever cultural reason, you pretty much only expected prophets to be the sons of prophets. And no matter what, God was clearly doing something new here. And yet you still have these onlookers, these folks that knew Saul growing up, going, Hey, who the heck does that guy think he is? That's Kish's boy, right? You know, from the donkey ranch? <laughs> Jesse decided last week that uh, having donkeys constituted a ranch. So that's just how we're going to talk about it tonight, Jesse. Thanks. The farm boy from the donkey ranch. Put that on your resume for being king. So anyway, they look at this, God's new plan for leading Israel. And they sneer at him. They doubt him, except for one guy in the crowd who's like, oh, oh, so you know the families of every single prophet over there? Oh, no. Oh, then maybe you should just shut up and see what God does. I kind of like that guy. Uh, Two different responses to this new, not quite as shiny as the old one, uh, plan for leading Israel. Keep an eye out for that as we look at the rest of this passage, because those two different reactions are going to figure in a lot. Verse 13. After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now, Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Hey, where you been? Uh, Looking for the donkeys, he said. But, you know, they, they weren't there, so we went to Samuel. It's no big deal. Saul's uncle said, well, tell me what Samuel said to you. Because unlike Saul, who lived five miles away from the judge of their entire nation and seemed not to have any idea who he was, everybody else did. And odds were that anything he said was probably going to be pretty important. So, nephew, what did the president tell you today? And verse 16, Saul replied, he assured us that donkeys have been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel said about the kingship. Yeah, you know, the donkeys are going to be okay. That's the gist of it. The ranch is intact. Like, what? Like, God's appointed prophet, the judge of your nation, tells you that you're going to be the first Jewish king in history, and you're all, yeah, you know, donkeys. Now, to give Saul a fair shake here, uh, there are a few legit reasons that he he might be ducking that question. Um, One, Saul could be respecting God by keeping a secret that God has not explicitly revealed to people. That could be it. Uh, And two, this is his uncle, who he'd be expected to show respect to. So how's it going to sound if he just tells him everything Samuel told him? Uh, Hey, Saul, take out the trash. Hey, uh, I know you haven't heard this from anyone but me, but I'm your king now, so no? (laughs) Awkwardness. 
Um, he could just be trying to respect his elder. Okay, like, I get that. But honestly, don't you think that the best way to respect him would be to tell him the full truth when he asks? <sighs> to me, at least, this seems like kind of a cop-out. And in that sense, it's a form of passively resisting this plan of God's. Verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to Yahweh at Mizpah and said to them, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. This is curious, and in a bigger way than we think it might be at first glance. Samuel's doing something we might not recognize. He's speaking in a form, a pattern, specifically that of a prophetic rebuke to the nation of Israel. And the pattern, the formula, if you will, went generally like this. Step one, identify God as the one originally speaking. Step two, remind Israel how awesome God's been to us. Bonus points if you can get Egypt in there. Step three, announce how Israel has sinned at this time. And then step four, pronounce the sentence. And here we've got all of that. Here's Yahweh says, he delivered you from oppression, Egypt bonus. Uh, you rejected God by asking for a king like other nations. And, and right where the sentencing goes, God says, line up so I can show you your new king. Having a king, getting what they wanted, is their judgment. And if that's not reason for fear and reverence before the Lord of hosts, I don't know what is. I mean, what you desire is so important. Train yourself, you know, to desire what God wants. Because not only is it going to bring you the most joy anyway, but if you insist on running from him in some area of your life without any desire to repent, there is the ever-present danger that at least for a while, God may give you what you want. What I asked you before, I'll ask again. Does that mean God's not in control? Verse 20. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Lots, for those who aren't familiar. Um, they were a, a way that God set up to discern his will, and especially in binary sort of yes or no questions. Um, this also has a deeper than obvious meaning, this scene, because the only other time in recorded Jewish history that this had been done, that they'd taken the entire uh, nation of Israel and whittled it down to just one person. That was in Joshua 7, when a guy named Achan stole some of the loot from Jericho, which God had commanded him not to do. Uh, we also know from recent archaeology that just before that, Jericho had been ravaged by plague, so this guy was carrying plague-ridden plague goods, and maybe that's part of why God said, don't take it. Um, so one reason, one reason, that Akan was being singled out to be killed and then burned was to save the other million or so Jews from a horrific death. Um, that process being repeated here, ominous to say the least. So, back to 20. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he, Samuel, brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, presumably just through prayer at this point. Hey, where'd the donkey rancher go? And the Lord said, he has hidden himself among the luggage. Yay, we've got a king! Fearless leader! Riding the baggage claim! Around and around. <laughs> this does not look all that impressive. We're like, we found our first king under some handbags. You know, benefit of the doubt, I'm going to try and set Saul up for success 
uh, as much as he's letting me, that, you know, maybe since he already knew the result of the public ceremony, what it would be, out of humility, he excused himself from it. You know, this could be it. And maybe he was like, look, I read Joshua, and the last guy who got picked this way got beaten with rocks and set on fire. Y'all have fun with that, and I'm just going to go build a pillow fort out of the suitcases of the tribe of Dan and wait inside until this all blows over. I wonder if there were any people in the crowd that day who started to understand that getting a king like they wanted was a plan B of God's, far less good than the plan A that they rejected. Their plan of trusting God as their own king. That they had thrown away something beautiful that they could never get back, not the same way as it was before. And how did the people respond to this? Verse 23. They ran and brought Saul out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! Huh. Samuel, if you recall, he was the first one to know that having any human king was Israel's consolation prize, you know, the bronze medal, the... Uh, the Tootsie Roll at Chuck E. Cheese when you couldn't get enough tickets for the big stuffed animal. He knows that having any human king is just pathetic in comparison to having God as their only leader and that intimate relationship with him. So why is he backing this guy anyway? Verse 25. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his own home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. It's a controversial week for Israel, isn't it? And, you know, who can blame them for their differing views on this? In that last verse, Saul shows some pretty admirable character, some good restraint, which he's going to do next chapter as well, right after he rolls into an Ammonite encampment and uh, saves an entire city of God's people. You know, he's got some really good qualities. Sometimes he even uses them. Not so much here, but ultimately, you know, he's not all good or all bad. He's a human being. He's like me or you, but he's no Yahweh when it comes to leadership. Um, this plan was not the ideal. Now, some people oppose him for his real faults, his imagined faults, whatever. Even Saul seems to be opposing Saul when it comes to the kingship thing. And so do the scoundrels of verse 27. The original phrase there was sons of Belial, which is a phrase that we've seen in a passage that you and I have looked at before, not too long ago. That's the same phrase that this same author used to describe Hophni and Phinehas, the corrupt sons of Eli. You remember them? Horrifically corrupt, perverse, violent, gluttonous people. Same phrase. It also carried connotations of breakers of oaths, agreements, or laws. Uh, in other words, people who wouldn't back anybody but themselves. What does it tell us that the one who wrote this history down chose to use that phrase to describe those who withheld respect from Saul, who he knew was just the second best option here? What does it tell us that Samuel, who knew how much less perfect a ruler Saul will be than Yahweh, a guy who was grieved when he heard Israel's demand for a king back in chapter 8, what does it mean that that guy backed Saul in private and honored him there and in public 
honored him with such enthusiasm, stirring up the crowd so that everyone could accept him as the new king. What does it tell us that through miraculous signs encountering God the Holy Spirit, designing Saul before he was even born to be of kingly stature, to fit the part, giving Saul good people like Samuel and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched as advisors, what does it tell us that God, whom Israel had rejected, so thoroughly backed this Saul, the people's king? Israel has gotten what it wanted, and God, it would seem, has not does this mean God is not in control? It's a question I think we all ask, if we're honest with ourselves. When you want to draw murder weapon words like idiots and worthless to stab into the incompetent manager, you know, co-worker, elected official, whoever it is, who's not acting as honorably as leader as Yahweh would if we had let him. When we lose the job, the friend, the health that we thought was a given. When things definitely aren't going according to plan A, the way things were supposed to be, back in the garden, back before sin infected everything. It's a question I've asked more than once. I asked it when tiny dots of cancer spread to my mom's brain and took her away from us. Um, I remember asking God, furious, why would you let this happen? Is this something you wanted? I know it isn't. Do you care? Were you even looking? I mean, you have all the power in the universe. Is it that you couldn't stop it or that you chose not to? I remember crying a lot then, thinking this wasn't supposed to happen. And if I knew anything about the character of God, anything at all, I knew that that was not a thing he wanted, but it happened anyway. So does that mean God isn't in control? Ultimately, I know my mom died because she chose to drink tap water in a town surrounded by farmers who chose to spray the earth with chemicals designed to kill living things. And those are choices that God knew about, didn't like, but allowed anyway. He cares that much about choice being real. Of course, I didn't know that in the years that followed my mom's death, when my home situation kept getting worse and worse. Between fits of anxiety and the panic attacks, I'd ask the question again, look, God, this is clearly awful. This is clearly not what you would want, but it's happening. So does this mean you're not in control? A funny thing happened through both of those situations. God made a way. Those of a theology different than mine might say that God adjusted his plans on the spot, came up with a new plan B when he realized he had to, and then just rolled with it. I've looked at the scriptures that relate to that, and I just don't think that way of thinking stands up. God knew me and everybody else involved well enough to perfectly predict our actions and the choices we would make and the results that would come from it, and well in advance before the foundations of this earth were laid, he had already written up a plan for it. He knew me well enough to predict my choice to abruptly leave home. And he had prepared a plan for that. As is often the case, God's plans involved people. Now, my father uh, is an amazing man of God. And I got to see that, sort of realize it for the first time in my last days before moving out. When I announced to my folks that I'd systematically lied to them for a number of years and that I was leaving the state within the week, my dad just went quiet for a minute, you know, eyes on the ground. And 
I was so afraid. When he looked up again, he just walked across the room, knelt down next to the chair I was in, and put his hand on me and said, Adam, I want you to know that no matter what happens, you are my son, and I will always love you. <laughs> I planned for every reaction but that one. <laughs> God, fortunately, is a better planner than I am. God foreknew that I would make the bad decision to leave home that way, just like he knew I'd make all the bad decisions that led up to it. And he had prepared a plan B. Now, not plan B in the sense of, oh, crap, I didn't see that coming. I better figure something out quick. Plan B in the sense that it started from a bad place. Not from where God wanted us to be, but from where he knew we would be. Just like God planned, my dad could see in my eyes and hear in my voice that my decision had been made. And there was no changing my mind. So he thought to himself, my son is leaving the way that would be better for him. But I love him. So, I'm gonna, so let's get behind him. Let's love and support him in practical ways. When I was packing to leave, my, uh, my dad shoved this toaster oven toward me and said, here, I want you to take this. And I was like, thanks. You know, just staring at it like it's some sort of relic from another world. Like, thanks? What do you, what do, you do with a toaster oven? And he's like, look, just, just take it. You might go somewhere where there's no microwave and maybe the oven doesn't work at all. So just take it. I said, okay. He turned out totally being right, and I did totally use it. Thanks, Dad. Um, yeah, God had prepared a plan and worked it through my dad. But you know something? Letting me go was allowing me to bring consequences upon myself. It was. Along the way to things being honestly pretty awesome like they are now, um, I had some of the crappiest years of my life. Like, there was suffering along God's plan B for me. It wasn't ideal. But our sovereign God allowed me to choose it. Just like he allowed Israel to choose having a human monarchy. It wasn't ideal. There was a lot of suffering along that route. If you don't believe me, read First and Second Kings. Goodness. God wasn't kidding in First Samuel 8 when he told Israel through Samuel... Look, if you're going to have human kings, I need you to understand how thoroughly this will suck. If the king, whichever king, is going to take and take and take and take, and you're going to hate it. He tried to warn them. But at the same time, God knows that without free will, nothing matters. There is no love among wind-up toys. So he chose to allow Israel to choose the unideal. And then a funny thing happened. He made a way. Or to phrase it a little more precisely, he had always had a way prepared for when this would happen. Check out the back half of Deuteronomy 17 sometime. It's not up on the slides, but I'm going to paraphrase it here. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, that ought to sound pretty familiar, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be Jewish, not a foreigner. He must not take many wives. He must not accumulate lots of wealth. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, when, not if, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Now, Saul didn't do this, but we saw Samuel do it in verse, I think, 25 or so. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and not consider himself better than his fellow man. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. 
In Deuteronomy, it says this. Deuteronomy was written four or five hundred years before the life of Samuel and Saul. God knew this was coming. It wasn't ideal, but he knew Israel would choose it, and he had a plan for it, like he does for everything, a plan to bring about goodness through circumstances that are not ideal. I imagine God saying, my people have rejected plan A, the ideal, the best thing for them, just like I knew they would, even though I wish they wouldn't. Their minds are made up, but I love them. So let's get behind them. Let's love and support them in practical ways. And if these people are going to have a human king, I want to give that king everything that he would need to succeed. Thus, Saul's build, his appearance, his charisma. Thus, Samuel's help in getting public support for him. Thus, his encounter with the Holy Spirit, the renewing and strengthening of his heart. Thus, those valiant men of God given to him as advisors to help out. God and anybody whose heart was like God's in this story called Saul what he was, the best current plan for accomplishing God's desires. And instead of being like the naysayers when Saul was prophesying and later getting crowned, um, the men and women of God, they were getting behind him to support him as best they could. They were setting him up for success. Do we do this? With our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our leaders, ourselves even? Do we respond the way that Samuel and company did? Or are we more like the ones who just grumbled and insulted Saul but did nothing to bring things more in line with God's will? Asking that question gets complicated pretty fast, in large part because the authors of the Bible, like any ancient historians, they wrote down only the details that they thought were relevant. And uh, in your life, you get all the details, whether you want them or not. Uh, and it's up to you to Sort it out. Figure the best way to apply it. To apply what we know about God and his will. It also gets complicated because there's definitely more of the Bible that addresses this concept than just one chapter in First Samuel. I mean, what about all the times that the prophets throughout the Old and New Testaments kept calling God's people to repent? Whatever you're doing, <laughs> turn back from that and get back on God's plan A. Please don't leave here tonight and tell your friends or whoever... Hey, a church Adam told us if we screwed up in some, we don't have to try and fix it. Just make up a plan B and then roll with it. No. Not at all what I'm saying. Hear this. Firstly, it's never about making our own plans. My plan A, plan B, plan C, none of that matters here. Um, this is about trying to discern the plans that God has made and trying to follow. We do not get to define our own terms for what is right or true or good. Hear that part. And secondly, you know, if you've put a pretty severe ding in God's plan A, but you haven't totaled it, maybe you should just put in the work to get that back on the road. Um, it takes a lot more to, to total our chances of living out God's ideal plan for our life than we usually think it does. Um, there's plenty of times when I've, you know, fallen off the wagon in some aspect of the Christian walk, and the most righteous thing for me to do is get up, put in the work, and get back on it, you know? It may be one of the hardest things I've ever done. Actually, it has been sometimes. But since when has easy ever equaled good? This whole God's plan B business, it's about times when we've missed a chance to do something, right? And we're completely unable to go back and change it. Or when circumstances are what they are because of other people's choices. We can't change that. 
So let's look at some examples of that, give this some context. We'll start widescreen and sort of zoom in as we go. So say you've got a boss who's, um, they're not exactly Yahweh. They're no Yahweh when it comes to being a boss, a leader of any kind. They screw up in ways that inconvenience you. They make more work for you. They give you some pretty unenjoyable days. Um, they're not only imperfect, they're, they're good at it. You know, it makes you wonder if they just practice. They wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, what can I fail at today that'll really annoy some people? Let's do that. At least that's what it seems like they would do. Maybe it's not your boss. Maybe it's your elected officials. That's a popular one for us to grumble about, right? Saul wasn't elected king, but same principle. Maybe it's your roommate, your spouse, your pastor, your friends. Whoever it is, they're imperfect. Not exactly idealized plan A people. And guess what? God's still using them. So, you know, these imperfect people, when, uh, when they're doing what they're doing, how are you going to live now in relation to them that supports what God might be wanting to do? Don't just be like the complainers in this chapter who don't do anything to change things. If the imperfect people in your life do anything good at all, hint, they probably do, get behind that. Support that good. Set them up for success. Try to guide others in love. And, you know, yeah, shepherd them a bit. You know, work for reform as is appropriate, like Samuel does through the rest of this book. But cooperate with God as he is trying to produce good through imperfect circumstances. Let's zoom this in a little bit. So here's a hypothetical. Say there's a guy who's trying to follow Jesus, but hasn't always done the best job of that. And uh, one day he gets a phone call from an ex-girlfriend. And she says, hey, you remember that, that one night that we, uh, we drank too much and then we, we did too much and then we broke up shortly after that? Look, I've been trying to track down your number for a while, but you have a son. <laughs> ah! <laughs> like, not ideal for anyone. Um, if he had always made good decisions, not slept with people he wasn't committed to in marriage, yeah, this would not have happened. But guess what? It happened. What now? What's the most godly option he has available now that he can't undo the past? As I see it, if God didn't give him any specific revelation, as we call it, any you know dreams or visions or audible voices from the Lord, um, then he's got to listen to what God's told him through his word. So I did a little digging on this, and here's some things we have to work with. Um, Deuteronomy 22 talks about certain circumstances where if a guy gets a girl pregnant, it's his responsibility to take care of her and or any kids involved. First um, Timothy 5 speaks pretty strongly about the responsibilities of everybody to take care of their family, especially close family. Uh, James 1 says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And his son and ex-girlfriend would be in pretty similar circumstances in some ways, needing perhaps a father figure, perhaps somebody to help financially and emotionally to support one or both of them, whatever is appropriate in that particular case. The point of knowing these things is not just to you know, recite chapter and verse at you. It's to understand the character of God and what he desires from us. That helps us discern what his current plan, his current best plan is for us. There's no way to change that guy's current circumstances, right? There's a kid. Things are what they are now. And so if there's no returning to the original ideal path for his life, the best thing he can do now is care for his son and or the mom in whatever way is appropriate. To set that kid up for success like Yahweh and Samuel set up Saul. All right, so here's another one. Um, imagine your job isn't exactly what you want it to be. This may not require imagination for some of you. 
So you quit. You're like, I don't have to put up with this crap. You quit your job and start looking for another. And you find nothing in your field for a while. You're running out of cash, and the only job ops you're seeing are things that you really don't want. You know, flipping burgers, being the coffee runner at the company that used to be your competitor. You don't want those, but at the same time, experience is showing you you're not getting, you know, the, the high-aiming job that you want to do right now, and you can't undo your quitting, so what now? What is the choice? And I'm not just saying the best choice, as if this is something we could abstractly reason out on our own without guidance from God's word. But what's the choice you can make that's most faithful to God and the general will that he has for your character? So, again, look through, and here's a couple things we can work with. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3, don't be idle if a man won't work, he shall not eat. I should probably get on, you know, doing something. Uh, you can look at certain readings of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the parable of the talents, or the minus, minus, whatever. Shows us God speaking well of productivity even in small jobs. First uh, Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. In other words, don't act entitled or prideful as if any legitimate way that God wants to provide for you is beneath you somehow. And from all over scripture, we know the value God puts on gratitude. So again, this isn't about just, you know, memorization verses. We're not at, you know, summer Bible camp at the moment. But what big picture can we pull from all of that, from what we generally know about God through the Bible? Keep your long-term goals, but at least for right now, maybe you take the crap jobs, you know, and you learn from it. Maybe next time your job sucks, you freaking don't quit just because it wasn't perfect. But no matter what, you keep moving forward toward becoming more like Jesus. There's two things that I want you to take away from this. Um, and here's the first one. You can wreck nothing that God cannot fix. I mean, don't flatter yourself, really. You're just not that good at it. <laughs> Like, no matter how good we are at making our lives unusable, God's better at using it. Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing that's unusable to God. I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, thank God that he knows what's going to happen, right? And he's always already planned for it. Romans 8.28 addresses this a bit. Uh, which reads, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In all things, you know, even when things look as ripped up as the wreck of the Peter Iredale or as laughable as your new king hiding in the baggage, nothing is unusable to God. When our circumstances make it look like he's no longer in control, recognize that as the optical illusion that it is. God is always in control and he is always working for good. So, that's the first thing. Second thing I want you to take away from this is the thought process. This habit of saying, okay, starting right here, right now, no matter how jacked this situation appears, no matter how I got here or whose fault it is, what now? Where do we go from here? No matter where here happens to be. And take steps toward God and his will for my life. How does he want to keep leading you forward? to the richness and beauty of a life in ever-increasing obedience to him and his desires for your story. This is heady stuff, and I know it'd be easy to let this sort of blur into abstraction or theory, but the whole reason that this has meaning is because it, it, uh, it applies to real situations in your life, in everybody's. Take some time to think about this, about situations in your life or the lives of people you care about, situations that are far from ideal. 
What's the next step forward from the current starting point toward God? If you want to talk this over, pray this over with somebody, I think that's a mighty wise place to start. Um, we're going to have some people back in the prayer cave during the second worship set. Um, take advantage of that, that opportunity. Or, and or, talk it over with somebody that you can confide in later. Most importantly, please, keep talking it over with God. May his will and desires be done. May we choose to desire the same. And may we make choices, starting anywhere at all, that honor the one who holds our lives in his hands. Amen.